0: Second Peter, go ahead and turn to Second Peter. Second Peter, chapter one, in verse nineteen, it says, "We have also a more sure word of prophecy, Whereunto until you do well, that you take heed." As unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And here we see, you know, previous to this, what we read. The Apostle Peter mentions that they were eyewitnesses of our Lord's majesty. That they heard the voice of the Father speaking of of His Son. At His baptism and also at the Mount of Transfiguration. That this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. They saw the Lord with their eyes. But yet Peter says we have a more sure word. More credible than anybody's eyewitness would be the scriptures themselves that they prophesied of the Jesus that was to come. And today we're going to be talking about how that word would endure to the end. Let's go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask, thank you, Lord, for your word. And I just pray and ask that you help give me clarity of speech today as we um, speak of your word and, and also speak of the history of of men do you use in um, the preserving of your word in Jesus name amen you may be seated Right, talking about the Word of God, how it shall endure. And the Word of God, we um, just read from Second um, Peter 1.16, but Second Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture... Is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the Word of God is profitable for us, for our benefit. But the most important thing is that the Word of God, God is the offer, it's God's Word. It's not man's word that God would use holy men of old. He would use them to pen His words. But it comes from God. We see even from the Bible that God gave it to us in a book. Um, Deuteronomy 31.24 says, And it came to pass when Moses had made an end of writing the words of this law in a book until they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites, which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and put it in the side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against thee, that it would still be there against them. Even when Israel would no longer be fallen after the Lord, the word of God would show and speak that that was so. Isaiah 38 says, Now go, write it before them in a table and note it in a book, that it may be for the time to come forever and ever. In Jeremiah, it says, Thus speak of the Lord God of Israel, saying, Write thee all the words that I have spoken unto thee in a book. That it may be uh, in, in a book. He had his word written in book. It is God's revelation to man. Deuteronomy 17, 18 says, And it shall be when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom, speaking of a king, that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priests, the Levites. And so it was the king's responsibility to copy the Word of God in another um, book. And that would all aid in part in the preservation of Scripture. But it would also help the king to have the Word of God in their heart and in their mind. Revelation 1.11, Jesus said, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. That it would be circulated. Um, that their message would be given to the seven churches. We see that God has a high value of His word. That He said every word of God is pure. And that's why we as a church, we take the Word of God serious. We take it um, that it's important, that the purity of the words, not just the thoughts, not just the ideas, but the words. Because every word of God is pure. Now, every once in a while, there'll be people that will say things like, you know what, you worship the Bible. Um, Well, we worship the Lord, we worship Jesus But Jesus is called, what? The Word of God. We see um, that it's by Jesus' name that we are saved. But as the Bible says, faith cometh by what? By hearing. And what's the hearing of? The Word of God. And so there's a big importance of value on God's Word. We don't worship the pages. We don't worship the ink, the black, the the white pages, the the, the red ink. But we worship the Lord, whom His word comes from. But look at this verse here in Psalm 138, 2. says, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy love and kindness and for thy truth. For thou, speaking of who? God has magnified Thy Word above all Thy name. That God has magnified His Word even above His name. But the Bible says there's no name under heaven whereby man must be saved, but by the name of Jesus Christ. But the way we hear of Jesus Christ is through the Word of God. The word of God is what teaches says about the great name of Jesus Christ. Deuteronomy four two says, "You shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you." And so God tells us, "Don't add to it, and don't take away from it." We see even in the end of Revelation. The same type of warning is given in Revelation 22, 18. For I testify unto every man that hear of the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Some very serious um, warnings. God promised that His Word would preserve forever. First Peter one twenty three says, "...being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of the incorruptible, by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is this grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away." But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. And this is a quotation from Isaiah 40, verse 8, which says, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. The God's word would be here to the end. I don't remember who it is. I was trying to look it up, but um, I couldn't find it. Um, but there was a man that ended up saying, declaring that he would get rid of the Bible. That the Bible would no longer be, and his house ended up being the printing presses for the Bible. Pretty ironic, huh? The one that said he would get rid of the Bible and it ends up being the printing press um, after he passed away. Um, in Matthew 24, 35, Jesus said, Heaven and earth shall pass away. You know, the Bible talks about how the heaven, the earth, they'll burn the firmaments. There'll be a new heaven, a new earth. But it's not about a new word, but his words. He said, but my words shall not pass away. His creation is going to pass away, but not his words. We see he puts a great emphasis of value on his words. And no wonder Satan would attack it. Um, so so greatly, go ahead and turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter three. Genesis chapter three it says, "Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, yea, if God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil." And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. What was Satan doing? Casting doubt upon God's word. Saying, yea, have God said? Is this really what God has said? You know what? God is wrong. God is just telling you that because He knows you'll be as God's yourself. That's what the Mormon church teaches. Same lie that Satan started. That you can be as God's yourself. But so Satan wants to cast doubt upon God's Word. He wants to get rid of God's Word. He attempts to get rid of God's Word. We see here in Jeremiah 36... And it came to pass that when Jehundi had read three or four leaves, he cut it with the penknife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. So here, Satan is using another man to destroy God's word. But you know what? God just has Jeremiah rewrite it. You know what, the original is no longer here. Well, you know what, let's make another copy of it. You know, in Mark 4, 15, the Bible says, Satan cometh immediately and taketh away the word. That many times people hear the word, they hear the gospel, and Satan wants to uproot the word of God out of their lives, um, take it away so it would, they won't dwell upon it. Satan also uses men to corrupt God's word. You know, they would already, in the days when the New Testament was still being written, there would be people that would claim to be the Apostle Peter, to be the Apostle Paul, and would be making these writings and spreading them out. Here's what the Apostle Paul wrote. "...that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us." Is that the day of Christ is at hand. Okay, so he's telling them, you know, don't believe this, these words that you're hearing. That, you know what, that, that Christ has already come and that his judgment is coming. Don't, don't, don't believe that. Even if it says it's from us. They were already beginning to corrupt the apostles' words back then. And that's where every once in a while on the History Channel, the Discovery Channel you'll find something where it'll talk about the lost book of Peter, or the lost book of Judas. No, we've known about those for a long time. But they've already been known to be fake. But they try and make it portray um, to society that doesn't know Christ or no, understand Christianity. They try and say, say like, this is recently discovered. Now, a lot of times it's already been discovered. Sometimes there maybe are some new discoveries that are made, but there are words that are written in the name of an apostle that were not. Um, Another time Paul wrote, For we are not as many what corrupt the Word of God. And so you know what, Satan will sometimes try to control people's mind um, by corrupting God's Word. Many times religions... We'll try to control people's mind by controlling their education. And if they control their they control their education by controlling their language. We see in history, Satan's attack on the word using different men. In three hundred and three AD, um, the Roman Emperor um, Diocletian issued an edict which decreed the burning of all Bibles. February 23rd was the feast of the Terminilia, the God of Terminus, and that the God, he was the God of boundaries, so-called. It was the day, in their mind, they would terminate Christianity. That in honor of this God, that's Terminus, Terminalia, that they would terminate Christianity. And they would do so by destroying the Word of God. That if there was no Word of God, there would be no people that would follow it to be Christians. In his first edict, he ordered that a newly built Christian church to be raised, the scriptures burned, and its treasures um, seized. And this prohibited Christians from, wor- from worship, and it ordered the destruction of the scriptures. But Christians tried to retain the scriptures as far as possible. They would try to keep them. And many times they would even give other writings... Um, Some of it, um, they believe, was probably partly the Apocrypha, that they would give them other writings that they didn't recognize as the Word of God, so that those would be burned instead of the Word of God being burned. And in other times, the Christians would freely hand over the Scriptures, hoping that, you know what, maybe they would read it before they would burn it. Most often, that was not the case. Um, It would be burned. Um, This also would make... Um, Christians deprive of the right to petition the courts, and, and which would mean that many times other people could make a case against the Christians. Well, the Christians couldn't have a defense. They, they couldn't have an attorney, so to speak. Um, Christian politicians and soldiers were deprived um, of their ranks. In Edict 2... In the summer of 303 AD, he ordered the arrest and imprisonment of all bishops. The um, bishops made the prison so full that ordinary criminals were crowded out and had to be released. All simply because, you know what? Christians being arrested because they had scriptures, because they um, claim to be Christians. Edict 3. Any imprisoned clergyman could now be freed so as long as he agreed to make a sacrifice to the gods. You know, the wardens got kind of tired of so many clergy because then the pastors there would be teaching them. And they would be giving the gospel to them. And they got tired of it. They wanted to get them out. The prisons were too full of Christians. So they said, hey, you can be free. You've already been tortured enough. Just make a sacrifice to the gods. Eusebius, in his book, Martyrs of Palestine, um, he records the case of clergy who were brought to the altar, had his hands seized onto the altar. His hands were held down. And then they would say, okay, make your sacrifice to the gods. And then a person would say, all right, your sacrifice is accepted when they weren't even making the sacrifice, but rather meat or other things were put in their arms, and their arms were held down. And they did this because they just wanted to get them out of the prisons. And then they also wanted to say to the other Christians that weren't arrested yet, that, hey, you know what, your pastors, they recanted. They're now falling after our gods, our Roman gods and the other gods. Others had been told they had sacrificed when they had done nothing. Edict 4 ordered all persons, men, women, and children, to gather in a public space and offer a collective sacrifice. If they refused, they were to be executed. In the pre Reformation history of the Bible, um, Article it said by 500 A.D. the Bible had been translated into over 500 languages. That's a lot. And by 500 A.D., Bible translated in 500 languages. That's the Word of God being translated in abundance. Just one century later, by 600 A.D., it had been restricted to only one language. The Latin Vulgate. The Latin Latin Vulgate. The only organized and recognized church at that time, so to speak, in the history was the Catholic Church of Rome. Now, there were other Bible-believing churches at this time. But the state only recognized the Roman Catholic Church um, at this time. It, but it, shortly after, the other guy, the emperor that wanted to get rid of Christianity, Constantine... He said, you know, okay, you know what, let's not persecute the Christians. You know, I had this dream, I had this vision. You know what, let's give peace, let's give security to the Christians. And then much in the church compromised, and it became the church of Rome. And that's why you would even, if you go to the Vatican today, you'll see at the Vatican, they have statues in honor to other gods. Instead of so two different Roman gods. And so the Roman Catholic Church, you'll see throughout, really around the world, um, there'll be Jesus, there'll be Mary, but it'll often be catering, it'll be changed into how it would fit the other countries present um, religions. Moving forward, Bible translated into about 500 languages. Then in 600 AD, it's only in one language, readily available. Those in procession of non Latin scriptures would be executed. This was because only the priests, so called the Roman Catholic priests, were educated to understand Latin. And this gave the church ultimate power, a power to rule without question, a power to deceive. <coughs> Thank you, I got a, um, empathy cough. Well, <laughs> thank you, me. Uh, power to extort money from the masses. Nobody could question their so called biblical teachings because few people, other than priests, could read Latin. The priests, some of them would be able to read it, but the pe- rest of the people would not understand, um, always understand um, Latin or understand the Bible. The church capitalized on this forced ignorance through the 1,000-year period from 400 A.D. to 1400 A.D., which we know is the Dark and Middle Ages. It's dark for a reason. The Word of God was suppressed. Christians would still do all they could to get a copy of the Word of God, but by society as a whole, it was suppressed. In 1198 A.D., Pope Innocent III issued a decree that all who read the Bible without permission should be put to death. And only the priests and their scholars would be allowed to read the Bible. The next year, he said, To be reproved are those who translate into French the Gospels, the letters of Paul, the Psalter. In 1229 A.D. at the Council of Toulouse, Canon 14. Um, He wrote, We prohibit also that the laity should be permitted to have the books of the Old or New Testament. We most strictly forbid their having any translation of these books. Now again, this is a religion that claims to be Christian. But they were only doing that to have control of the people. But they kept the Word of God from the people... So they could make up their own teachings. They could teach. They could teach purgatory. They could um, say you need to pay indulgences so your relatives could get out of purgatory, pay this money so we could build the Vatican. That's how it was built. It was built from basically indulgences. And, and, and then they could have their sins forgiven because you paid money. It's nonsense. The Bible says we cannot buy our ransom. You know, our only ransom comes through faith in Jesus Christ. In 1408 A.D., Archbishop of York, so this is the Church of England now, said, We therefore decree and ordain that from henceforth no unauthorized person shall translate any part of the Holy Scripture into English or any other language under any form of book or traducy. In Fox Book of Martyrs, they record that in the year 1517, seven people were burned at the stake by the Roman Catholic Church for teaching their children to say the Lord's Prayer in English rather than in Latin. In 1553 to 1558, they would use Bibles as fuel to burn Christians at the stake. John Wycliffe, He's known as the father of the English Bible. From the Latin, the first handwritten English language Bible manuscripts were produced in the 1380s by John Wycliffe, an Oxford professor, scholar, and theologian. He was well known throughout Europe for his opposition to the teaching of the organized church of Rome, which he believed to be contrary to the Bible. With the help of his followers called the Lollards and his assistant, Pervy, and many other faithful scribes, he produced dozens of English language manuscript copies of the Scriptures. They were translated out from the Latin Vulgate, which was the only source text he had available. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the Latin Vulgate um, has some very many serious errors in it, but it was all he had. And so though as a whole... It wouldn't be the complete, pure Word of God. It did contain um, the Word of God still. And so that's what he had. That's what he used to translate. And um, John Wycliffe was called the Morning Star of the Reformation. Um, the, The Protestant Reformation was about one thing, getting the Word of God back into the hands of the masses in their own language so that the corrupt church would be exposed and the message of salvation and Christ alone, um, by Scripture alone, through faith alone, would be proclaimed. Well, the Catholic Church didn't like any kind of opposition, of course, so they didn't just take it. He was condemned as a heretic by the Catholic Church. The church bitterly opposed his Bible, even though it was translated from their own Latin Vulgate. They said, by this translation, the scriptures have become vulgar and they are more available to lay and even to women who can read than they, were, than they were to learn scholars who have a high intelligence. So the pearl of the gospel is scattered and trodden underfoot by swine. That was what the Catholic Church said about his translation. He replied, Englishmen learn Christ's law best in English. Moses heard God's law in his own tongue. So did Christ's apostles. John Wycliffe, for the most part, was praised and honored by Oxford. He was one of their scholars. People loved him. But when he questioned, when he preached, um, as long as his attacks were against the wealth and the abuses of the Catholic Church, they could support him um, at Oxford. But once he dismissed the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, he was opposed by many. And in 1382, he was summoned before a synod at Oxford, a meeting of a bunch of clergy. They said, you know what, you're teaching against transubstantiation. And that was to believe that in communion, that departs, the bread actually became the body of Jesus. And that the, the, the Jews actually became the blood of Christ. And he opposed that. And said, no, the Scriptures do not teach that. But that Jesus said to do this is a memorial unto me. Well, the Church of England did not like that. And, 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 and Oxford did not like that. And so they summoned them. Now, by a few that you know, really knew them, that really appreciate them... He was able to let, let go free um, at this time. He still commanded the favor of the court and of the legislature. So he was um, let be. And so um, here's the church where Wycliffe preached at. And he died um, on December 31st in 1384 A.D. of a stroke. His assistants finished the translation work of the Bible from the Latin Vulgate to English. And um, twenty-three late years later, though Oxford is a whole condemn him and ban his writings, which would be banning his Bible. Followers of Wyclive in England were often designated destinate, by their opponents as "Bible men." They would mock them, go, "Oh, those are the Bible men," and that's coming from a church that's supposed to be teaching the Bible, but they mocked them is Bible men. And so at Oxford and the Church of England, the the Roman Catholic Church opposed um, him. And the Catholic Church hated John Wycliffe so much because you imagine now they would have something that would contain the Word of God in English that people would see it, they would read it, and then they would start seeing, you know what, I don't need to be going and confessing my sins to a priest. Nowhere does this teach I must do good works to earn favor with God to go to heaven. No, it's by justification by faith alone. The church was starting to lose her grip. The Roman Catholic Church. And so, in fourteen fifteen A.D., thirty-one years after John Wycliffe's death, Pope Martin V had his—he he declared for his bones to be dug up. And it didn't happen until um, a few years later, until 1428 A.D. But they dug up his bones, judged them, condemned them, and, and burned them, and the ashes were thrown into the river, all because he translated the Latin Vulgate into English. John Fox said in his Book of Martyrs, though they digged up his body, burnt his bones, and drown his ashes, yet the Word of God and the truth of his doctrine, with the fruit and success thereof they could not burn, was yet to this day doth remain that the Word of God still remains. This is John Huss over here, and then another of one of the pope's priests. And he was a follower of John Wycliffe, and, and he, he read his translated Bible. He was a courageous pastor, and he was summoned to give a hearing on charges of heresy, and he was tricked, and um, in that he, they were saying, you know what, just give a hearing, you know what, we don't mean you any harm, just come and tell us why you're doing what you're doing. And, and so they come. he comes, but he was tr- tricked and simply arrested upon showing up and he was sentenced to be burned by a church council in 1415. When Huss heard his sentence pronounced, he fell to his knees and prayed, Lord Jesus, forgive my enemies. And so they would burn him at the stake. When he was chained to the stake, he prayed, In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Before his accusers lit the fire, they placed on his head a crown of paper, papyrus, and painted devils on it. As you could um, see, they painted devils on him, saying that, you know what, he is a follower of the devil. And he answered this mocking and said, My Lord Jesus Christ, for my sake, wore a crown of thorns. Why should not I then, for his sake, wear this light crown?" be it ever so ignominious. Truly, I will do it willingly. After the wood was stacked up to his neck, the Duke of Bavaria asked him to renounce his preaching, and he would be set free. He replied, in the truth of the gospel which I preach, I die willingly and joyfully today. The wood was ignited, and he died while singing, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, have mercy on me. It's all done in the name of religion. Jesus even said the day would come when they would take you and they would kill you and say they were doing God's service. Another man, um, just to kind of give you an idea of the times, Thomas Hawkes, he refused to have his child baptized by the Roman priest. And so he hid his child for three weeks. His enemies had him charged with being unsound in religion, particularly on three charges, that he refused to have his child baptized, to have him christened, that he refused to hear the Mass in Latin. And third, he studied the Bible for himself. Heresy, they declare. On February 8, 1555 the Bishop of London, Edmund Bonner, condemned, and this is the Church of England, condemned Hawkes as a heretic of serious crimes. He was sentenced to die with Thomas Watts on June 10th. His friends were apprehensive. They knew that it would probably be them next to embrace the stake and the fire. They asked him to give him a sign that if his mind was still at peace in the flames. Because they knew, they're like, this is going to be us next. Show us that you really believe what you believe. And he said he would simply raise his hands to heaven if he was at peace. On that day when the fire was long that he could no longer speak, his skin had shrunk, his fingers had burned off and everyone thought he was dead. He suddenly raised his burning hands above his head and started clapping. His fingers burnt off. His skin almost all burned off. He couldn't speak, but he raised his hands to heaven. And then the people understood the significance, and they broke into praise and applause as he went to be with the Lord. Another important aspect to the preservation of Scripture, we see, again, man doesn't preserve God's Word. God said he would preserve his word. But God would often use man to facilitate that. But um, Joanne Gutenberg invented the the printing press in the 1450s. And um, it was the first book to ever be printed, uh, first book to be printed ever, was the Bible. It was of of, of the uh, Latin language Bible, printed in Germany and the printing press ended up being essential to the success of the Reformation as it could finally effectively produce the scriptures in large quantities. Before, they had to always handwrite the manuscripts. But now, it would be printed. Thomas Linacre, um, in the 1490s, an Oxford professor and personal physician to the King Henry VII and Eighth, decided to learn Greek. He said, after reading the Gospels in Greek and comparing it to the Latin Vulgate, he wrote in his diary, either this is not the Gospel or we are not Christians. He saw that there was a difference between the Latin Vulgate and the Greek. Now, could someone still find a plan of salvation in the Latin Vulgate? Absolutely. It would still be in there, but there would be things that would be different. Like for one, hey, the Bible, the Greek—I um, must say it in English, though, okay, so you understand it. But it would say um, God was manifest in the flesh. Theos would be the Greek word that God was manifest in the flesh. The Latin Vulgate, instead of saying Theos, would use the equivalent that would say He. He was manifest in the flesh, and so it takes away something that is very important. And so the Latin had become so corrupt that it no longer even perceived the message of the gospel as clearly. And yet the Roman church and even the church of England still threatened to kill anyone who read the scripture in any language other than the Latin. Even though Latin wasn't even the original language of the scriptures. None of the scriptures were originally written in Latin. Willem Tyndale comes to the scene. He was educated at Oxford as well. And um, this is where um, he lived. And here's um, his room here. And um, he was an English reformer, a Bible translator. He wanted to translate um, the Bible instead of from the Latin, from the original Greek languages and translate it into English. And the priest told him, we are better without God's laws than the Pope's. That we would rather have the Pope's laws than God's laws. Tyndale replied, I defied the Pope and all his laws. And that's a scary thing to say back then. You don't oppose the Roman Catholic Church or you lose your life. He goes, I defy the pope and all his laws. If God spare my life, ere many years, I will cause a boy to drive of a plow that shall know more of the scriptures than thou doest. Now thou dost. He says, I'll make a plow boy. A boy that has no education. And he will know more of the scripture than you. Tyndale sought permission from the Bishop of London to print the Bible in English. Um, Bishop Tunsell showed him the door and made sure there was no other open door in London for him to translate the Bible into English. Unable to take um, the translation of the Bible in his native country because of opposition of the established church, he left England never to return. He began the printing of the first translation of the New Testament in Cologne, Germany, in 1525, through Peter Quintel, but faced enormous odds and misfortunes. And uh, as the work um, began, Tyndall's plan um, became interrupted. One of the Bishop Tunstall's friends, the guy that wouldn't let him do it in London, he was a a Bible hunter. He went after the Bibles to destroy them. Cocalius was his name. And he happened to be in Cologne, Germany. And by an unfortunate coincidence, he also commissioned Peter Quintel to publish a work for him. He got friendly with his men and drunk one night, and the men revealed that 3,000 copies of the English New Testament were to be secretly shipped to England. The printer's workshop later was raided. When the authorities arrived, Wilhelm Tyndall had already fled, but the damage was done um, um, that the word of his dangerous work was already on its way to English. And he wrote, Clochias um, wrote to Worsley and Henry VIII to keep a strict watch for this pernicu- per- pernicious merchandise. Keep an eye out for this English translation of the scriptures. And there's a um, picture, a copy of his New Testament. And now he just did a New Testament and some of the books in the Old Testament, but he didn't get to finish the entire Old Testament. But great was the commotion of the Word of God in English um, among the clergy, that Wycliffe's Testaments had been troublesome enough, even though it took months to write out a single copy, and the cost prevented any really but the rich from buying it. But now in 1525... Tyndale's New Testament was completed and published at a rate of hundreds each day at a price within many would be able to uh, make. So then comes Paul's cross. They Tyndale. Thousands of copies were discovered in their hiding places. They were burned at a ceremony at St. Paul's in the city of London. This was called a burnt offering, most pleasuring to Almighty God but still other thousands supplied the places of those destroyed because of the printing press. And, and for Tindall was not, and Tindall wasn't discouraged. He continued to do the work. He knew that the printing press could defy them all. He said, in, the burning, in burning the books, they burn me also, if it be God's will that it should be so. He said, I'm going to keep doing it. If they burn me with the word of God, so be it. It soon became clear to the church officers that they could not hinder the entrance of the book in New England. And then a new idea occurred to the bishops of London. He sought out Augustine Packington, a merchant trading to Antwerp, and asked his opinion whether it would be possible to buy up all the copies across the water and get them out of the way. Do you think we can buy them all and get rid of them? He said, My Lord... He was also a secret friend of Willem Tyndale. But he said, if it be your pleasure, I could do in this matter probably more than any merchant in England. So if it be your lordship's desire to pay for them, for I must disperse money for them, I will be sure to get for you every book that remains unsold. Good master, Packington, said the bishop, do your diligence and get them for me and I will gladly give you whatever they may cost for the books are naughty and I intend surely to destroy them all and you burn them at St. Paul's cross. A few weeks later, um, he entered, Packington entered the humble lodging of Tyndale whose funds he knew were at his lowest point that he had gotten in much debt um, in trying to get the Bible out he, um, so his finances weren't doing. And he said, Master Tyndale, I have found you a good purchaser of your books. Who is he? He said, My Lord Bishop of London. Tyndale said, But if the bishop wants the books, it must be only to burn them. He's pretty smart. He knows, he knows where it's going. And he said, Well, what of that? The bishop will burn them anyhow. And it is best that you should have the money to print others instead. Hmm. And so the bargain was made. They said the bishop had the books, Packington had the thanks, and Tyndale had the money. And Tyndale said, I am the gladder, for these two benefits shall come of it. I shall get money to bring me, myself out of debt, and the whole world will cry out against the burning of God's word. It's like the world, they'll be like, no, they'll be terrified that God's word is being burned by the established church. And the overplus of the money that remains shall enable me to correct the said New Testament. He said, you know, he had a little bit of printing errors um, as he was pu- um, getting it published. He said we could get corrected and anew newly to print the same again. And I trust that the second will be much better than ever was the first that was printed. And after this newly printed Testament came thick and fast in New England, The bishop then sent for Packington again and asked, how come the books are still so much in abundance? The merchant replied, my lord, truly I think it were best for you to buy up the stamps too by which they are imprinted. (laughs) Too late now. In 1535 he was arrested and imprisoned and the next year he was strangled and burn at the stake at Brussels. His last words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Less than a hundred years later, we end up getting the King James Bible, where most of the translators end up being from the church of England. And there were Puritans um, as well. Look at what people did to, keep, to have a copy of the Word of God. To distribute the Word of God. Ask yourself a question. Is the Word of God a treasure to me? Do I value it? You know, as Jesus said, it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Job said, neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of His mouth more than my necessary food. How much do you value God's Word? I'm convicted of just teaching this. How much do I value it? How much do I read it? Here, it meant their lives by the religious elite, the establishment, so to speak. And they were doing this, translating the Bible to get it to other people. You know, we have printed Bibles, we have printed gospel tracts that have Bible verses on them. Do we value getting them out? Here, man, it meant their life. And it may mean that here one day again. Right now, you've got the freedom to distribute gospel tracts, to distribute the Bible to people. It's good to ask ourselves, how much are we treasuring the Word of God? God's purpose for His Word. 1 Corinthians 10.6 says, Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things, as they also lust. Okay, the New Testament referring to the Old Testament, that these were written for our example, not to make the same mistakes that they made, Romans 15, 4 says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Galatians says, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. God has a purpose for His Word. Let's get the Word of God in our life. Let's get the Word of God in other people's life. Sometimes we wonder, why why is that so hard for other people to believe? Well, before they could really have faith, the Word of God must have its influence on their life. The Spirit of God must work on their heart. Now, we can't control the Holy Spirit, but you could get the Word of God in their life. And then the Spirit of God uses the Word in their life. John 20. Verse 24 says, But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through His name. Bible was written that we may have eternal life. That we may know Him personally. And so if you don't know Jesus as your own personal Savior... If you don't know if you were a die today, that heaven would be your home, that your sins would be forgiven, please talk with me and we'll show you from the Bible. Not just from something I want to teach, but from the Bible, how you can have eternal life. The Roman Catholic Church, the Church of England in times past, they fought to keep the Bible from being in your language. We have it available now. You know what, here it's a Baptist church. You know what, you're able to look at the Bible and go, you know what, it's the pastor preaching what is thus say of the Lord. I can't hide over your ignorance if you're reading the Bible. And you're not ignorant. David even mentioned in the Psalms that one could know more than his instructors by knowing the Word of God. By knowing... God's precepts. A Bible college student can know more than his professors. Sometimes a professor has a focus on something, a particular study. Bible college student could be really getting into all of the Bible. The Bible will set you free. Next week, um, we're going to be teaching on the history of the older English translations, some again on Willem Tyndale, but the Matthew's Bible, the Coverdale Bible, and primary focus on the history of the authorized version. And so, I encourage you to come back. Um, be a, um, I believe it's a fascinating um, lesson um, about the history of the King James Bible. And so, I encourage you to come back. Take some time to. Um, Read some of the info in the back and you'll kind of get a head start. Um, Let's go ahead and pray and then we'll um, be dismissed. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word that um, you did promise that it would endure forever. That the word of the Lord endure forever. And we're thankful um, for all those that you've used throughout history that fought to have the Bible in our English language. And we give you thanks in your name, amen. And just remember we got our marriage recharged this Wednesday night. We also have a ladies spark, a ladies getaway day, um, on the fourth of April, I believe. We have a poster on the door and you could see a little bit of info about that and we'll talk about that more later. Another one.